We'll start today in John chapter 7. We have gotten through those hard sayings in John chapter 6 last week and go on. John chapter 7, it's page 1124 if you're using a Schofield reference Bible. That's what we have in the pews in front of you in the auditorium here. If you're not using a Schofield Bible, we still love you. That's fine. Uh, you'll have to find your own page number. We give page numbers out just to make it easier to find. There's displayed on the screen here in the auditorium a, a heading that is, uh, that is not part of the text. It's just Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And that's an appropriate heading, though. It does say in verse 2, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. That's another name for the Feast of Booths. Booths and Tabernacles both being words for temporary uh, structures, like a tent. <laughs> and one of the major feasts that the Lord gave the Jews, besides Passover and Pentecost, was tabernacles. They, it was a week-long feast plus a day. It went seven days and then one more, which they called the great day of the feast. We'll see that in the other half of chapter 7. In any case, it starts off with after these things, which means we better think back to what we just got through. What's the things that has come just before this? Well, in chapter 6, Jesus had taught and healed. He had fed the multitude he had seen them about to force the kingdom on him. We'll make you a king. He didn't care for that. And then in the more recent part of chapter 6, he had taught hard sayings in the synagogue in Capernaum, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And many of his followers, disciples, not the apostles, had gone away. They said, this is a hard saying, and they didn't walk with him anymore. But his chosen disciples have also given that great declaration from Peter. He said, well, who we go to? You've got the words of everlasting life. We can't go to anybody else. His disciples had said, we'll stay with you. So after those things, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, please help the teacher. Please be our teacher and, and get me out of the way as far as confusing things that I might throw in. Help us to hear and here with understanding, here with intent to remember, and remember so that when we face real-life situations, your word will come back to us and perhaps improve how we respond to real-life situations that we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, after these things, walked in Galilee and the reason is given, he would not walk in Jewry, that would be what they're referring to as Judah, the area around Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. Galilee was part of the northern ten tribes, now back under the sway of Judah. But uh, he wouldn't walk in Jewry right then, right there, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, that idea that the Jews sought to kill him, I think, was generally known, at least in Galilee. His brothers are mentioned in verse 3. His brothers said to him, It's time to go. Depart hence. Go to Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. 
go down there. That's where the crowd is. That's a feast. You know you ought to go there. The, the brothers go on. There is no man that doeth, doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John, the writer, adds this note of explanation in verse 5. Very sad. Neither did his brethren believe in him. I gather from verses 3 and 4 what they said and what John says in verse 5 that perhaps his brothers were trying to get rid of him. <laughs> they knew the Jews wanted to kill him. He doesn't want to go down to Judah at this instant because they tried to kill him. His brothers said, time to go down to Judea. And John explains his brothers did not believe in him. How sad. Now, later they did. These brothers, that would be the children of Mary and Joseph, probably. Jesus would be their half-brother because Joseph was not his father other than in a legal sense. And we have their names given in the other Gospels. One of them's name is James. One of them's name is Judas, or Jude. Not, not Iscariot, but the other Jude. And those half-brothers of Jesus who didn't believe him in, at this point, but did later, appear to be the authors of our books in the New Testament that go by their name, James and Jude. Now, there was one of the twelve whose name was James, Peter, James, and John. Very important. But he was killed very early in the history of the church in the book of Acts, so he couldn't be the one that wrote the letter to, of James that we have because he's already in heaven when that letter got written. So we're probably the James that we know about from church history later in the book of Acts, the James that wrote the, the letter, the leader in the church at Jerusalem, and Jude as well, were both perhaps the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus. They were certainly close around. They followed without being believers, which is a sad thing. I think I've mentioned before, it is a very, it's a tragic thing. It's a sad thing for a believer not to be a disciple. It's wrong. It's disobedience. But it's much worse for a disciple not to be a believer. A disciple, follow Jesus, be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Disciple, disciple, disciple. But never believe in him as the only way to get to heaven. They have a blessed life, or probably seem like they have a blessed life, because Bible principles work whether you're a believer or not. And then they die and they're separated from God and everyone that believes forever. That's just awful. So better to be a believer. Better to be a believer and then be a disciple. That's the best thing. So the multitude knew that they wanted to kill him. But, uh, down in verse 19, I'm just going to scroll down for a second. Jesus said to the group objecting to him in Jerusalem, he did go down to the feast, we'll get to this, he said, why go you about to kill me? And they, did, they, they, <laughs> they knew that. They denied it, verse 20, the very next thing. They said, Who, you've got a demon, you've got a devil, who's going around to kill you? But they knew, in verse 25, it, it says, Some of them of Jerusalem said, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? This idea that Jesus 
is the object of death threat is repeated over and over again here by various people that established the idea that it was widely known that they wanted to kill him. And they wanted to, they, the leadership of Jerusalem and the Jews, wanted to arrest him and take him and have him killed. Verse 30, we'll get down to all this a little bit, but verse 30 says, Then sought, they sought to take him, that is, arrest him, put him in clamp and chains. But no man laid on, on, hands on him because his hour was not yet come. They wanted to take him so they could put him to death. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the people talking about him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers, law enforcement officers, to take him, to arrest him. That's what they wanted to do so they could kill him. Verse 44, some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers that were sent by the chief priests and Pharisees came back to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said unto them, why have you not brought him? And they didn't have anything to really excuse themselves except, boy, he's a good talker. Never man spake like this man. And they start arguing with them. Well, I just went through all of that ahead of time, so to speak, so that you'd realize he's He's got reason to fear they want to kill him. That, not that he was out of control. He's God in the flesh. But just as he feared the multitude after feeding the multitude with the loaves and fishes, they wanted to make him a king. It wasn't time for that yet. And so he went away to the mountain alone to pray and sent the disciples away and sent the multitude away. And he didn't, it wasn't time yet to be king. The Jews want to kill him. That is what he's going to do, is die for the sins of the people. But it's not time yet. But it is time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 2, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. That's, we we uh, see that little expression, at hand, here and there in the, in the New Testament. When John the Baptist went out preaching, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means there's nothing else that has to happen yet before that happens. Which is interesting that John the Baptist would say that. Jesus was really making an offer of the kingdom to Israel, but they rejected it. Is there anything in prophecy that is, you would say, at hand today? Nothing else has to happen before this happens? The rapture of the church. It has been at hand ever since the church was born because the apostles in the early church expected, well, maybe we'll make it to the rapture. I'd rather be caught up. You know, I'd rather go with the upper taker than the undertaker, the way Dr. Arnold says it. But um, it's at hand. We don't have to see Israel back in the land, but they're back in the land. Wow. We don't have to see the temple rebuilt, but boy, if they rebuild the temple, I'm going to loosen my suspenders. You know, I'm going to get ready to go. It's at hand. Nothing else in prophecy must happen before the event we call the rapture of the church, where all the believers wait for a moment while all the dead in Christ rise first, and then we which are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. It's, ready, it's time to go. You've got to get down there or you'll miss the big opening ceremony. The, his brothers were correct. If you want to go for that, you better go. But they 
perhaps had an attitude. Can you imagine growing up in Mary and Joseph's household as one of the siblings of Jesus? Why aren't you like your brother? <laughs> he never does anything wrong. <laughs> I don't know. He probably got along real well with him. Apparently, Joseph passes from the scene, and Jesus ends up head of household for a time there. And when it came to be 30 years old, he had to leave to go about his, his heavenly father's business, and then the leadership of the house of Mary and the departed Joseph passes on to another sibling. Well, verse 3 and 4, his brothers urge him to go and show his miraculous works to the world. <coughs> he says... No, they didn't believe him. He gives a two-sided two answer here, verses 6 through 9. He does respond to his brothers. Then said Jesus, then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I come not up yet unto this feast. My time is not yet full come. You might remember he used that same answer when his mother at the wedding in Cana asked him to deal with the they don't have any wine problem. And he said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. It wasn't time for him to be doing flashy displays of miraculous. He was afraid that they would again push him to the kingdom before he was ready for it. Here he's saying to the brothers who don't believe in him, my time has not yet come. It's not time to go and die. This is a feast of tabernacles. A year and a half from now, there'll be a, a feast of the Passover and I'll go and die. This isn't time yet. Your time is always ready. He says, you've got no spiritual calendar. You can go and come. The world doesn't hate you. The world cannot hate you. Me it hates because I testify of it that it's, the works thereof are evil. That's an interesting thought there. Jesus said the world hates him because of his testimony concerning the world that its works were evil. We don't spend as much time as perhaps a different generation did testifying to the world that their works are evil. There was an evangelist a hundred years ago named Billy Sunday who did spend a lot of time preaching the gospel, but always also preaching about the evil of sinful works in the world, especially alcohol. He, he'd go into a town to have a, a series of meetings, and the bars would close and never open again. He, he hated it. He hated not only alcohol, he, he hated sin generally. He says, I'm against, this is a, <laughs> a fragment from Billy Sunday, if you will allow it, he says, I'm against sin. I'll punch it as long as I've got a fist, and I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot, and I'll butt it as long as I've got a head, and I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and headless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory, and it goes home to perdition. <laughs> now, that's not the gospel message, but he was against Sin. Why was he against sin? Because he grew up in it. He was a professional baseball player that was rowdy and corrupt and a drunk. And he got saved. 
at the old Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. Heard the hymn, said, boys, this is for me. Walked away from his drinking buddies and in and heard the gospel and got saved and wanted to share it. And he was electrifying. My grandmother heard him preach as well as one of her friends. And talking with that friend later on, I think that's where she got saved. My grandmother was an old Methodist. <laughs> I'm not against the Methodists. I spent a lot of hours in the Methodist church when I was a boy. It would have been nice to hear the gospel once in a while, but I did spend a lot of time respecting the Bible and learning hymns and things like that, singing Kumbaya. <laughs> but anyway, Jesus said he testified concerning the world that its works were evil. You might remember at the end of chapter 3 that he spoke about why people stay lost. Let's go back to chapter 3 for a second. I think I can get there from here. Bang, 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 bang. At the end of chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, Jesus spoke of himself. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. There's why lost people stay lost. We don't tell them, boy, you're bad sinners. We don't do that so very much. But their own inclination is, I don't want to come to the light. I don't want people to know about what I do. Everyone that doeth evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now maybe we should spend more time, I don't know, talking about the consequences of sin. What's the worst thing that you can think about sin? Well, it messes my life up. That's not the worst thing. What's the worst thing about sin? Well, it hurts other people. That's not the worst thing. When, I don't mean if, when I sin, what crushes me is the memory of the cross. It is my sin that made Jesus choose to go to die on the cross. It's my sin that brought him to the point where he had to cry out, my God, my, not my father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where the father turned his face away from the son, the perfect fellowship of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, broken because Jesus died, was separated from the father for my sin. That's the sinfulness of sin. You might remember King David wrote Psalm 51 after the event with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband, and describing in his guilt his sin before God, he says, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. I would think that Uriah might think there was somebody else there too. And Bathsheba might remember, didn't you sin against me and my husband? But David says it was against God, against God only. Why can he say that? Because the, the awfulness of sin 
is what it cost God the Son and God the Father. It's so much more serious than just what it does in your life and in mine. It sent Jesus to the cross to pay for it in my place. So verse 9 says he's, he abode still in Galilee for a little bit. He sent them off. Verse 10, when his brothers were gone up, well, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He did go. He wanted to go to the feast. He had work to do there. Before he made himself known at the feast, in Jerusalem, verse 11 says, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? They, they, they know about this man from Galilee. They want to know where he is. Verse 12, there was much murmuring among the people concerning them. Some said one thing, some said another. There, there a little bit of an argument going on. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he deceives the people. He's saying he's, he's the Christ. Verse 13, howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. The, the Jews were arguing about it. When he taught, verse 14 and 15, now about the midst of the feast, so seven-day feast plus one more, somewhere in there in the midst of the feast, Tuesday, Wednesday, he went up into the temple and taught. That's what he did. And they're trying to kill him. He knows they're trying to kill him. The Jews marveled at his teaching. How knoweth this man letters, having never learned now, in other places, it says he taught as one that had authority and not like the scribes. But Jesus taught God's word, and he taught it effectively. He knew letters. In other words, he knew the Bible. He could read and write, but he never learned. You say, how do you know he could write? He wrote in the sand one time. It's in chapter 8. We'll get there. He never went to rabbinical school. He never studied. He was a, a, a learned carpenter, if you will. He knew the skills of the trade, but he could teach God's Word. Of course, we know he could teach it because he wrote it. He could teach it because he knew it all. Verse 16, he answers their marveling about his teaching and says, my doctrine, that which I teach, is not mine. It's his that sent me. He was never shy about in public talking about where he came from. He came from God the Father. He came from heaven. In verse 17, he says this, and it, it's kind of masked in the King James English. The word will in the middle of the, the first word will here in verse 17 is not a helping verb. We use will do, will jump, will run, but it's not that. It's its own separate verb that means chooses or has the volition to do. If any man willeth to do his will, if any man chooses to do his will, if that's what you're headed for, if that's what you want, if you want to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. He'll understand the teaching, what they were just arguing about. How do you get this, this letters, this doctrine, this Bible teaching if you want to do the will of God, you'll know whether this teaching actually comes from God, that's who his, him, him that sent me is, or whether I speak out of my own back pocket, I just made this stuff up. 
verse 18, he criticizes those that would just uh, lift themselves up. He that speaketh of himself out of his own uh, made-up stuff, he seeks his own glory. That's not me. Verse 18 goes on, He that seeketh his glory that sent him, and that's all I want to do is glorify the Father. That's Jesus talking. He that seeketh his glory that sent him. The same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Think of an ambassador. An ambassador that, say, went from Washington, D.C. to Paris to represent the United States, like Benjamin Franklin did for a time. And if he'd got over there and said, I want you all to subscribe to the Poor Richard's Almanac, I mean, this would be a real good thing, and you'll learn a lot. And he says, I've got a printing company, and I've got some scientific experiences. I really need some subscribers to support me in my work. He would be speaking of himself. But if he goes over there and says, America is a good friend and an ally, and we need some ships to take care of the British ships, and he was representing the country that sent him, and he did get a ship for John Paul Jones to go to battle in. He seeks the glory of him that sent him. He's true, and no unrighteousness is in him. My illustration is a poor one. But Jesus said, I seek God the Father's glory. And so what I say and what I teach is true. And then he said, no unrighteousness is in him. It's not about how great I am. It's about how great God is. Then he uses an illustration about Moses talking to the crowd in Jerusalem, in the temple, teaching, answering their question about marveling at his teaching because he wasn't schooled. He said this, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? And the Pharisees went, what did he say? <laughs> Not even the Pharisees kept the law. He's going to illustrate it in a little bit. And then he said in the same breath, Why go you about to kill me? And there's a great crowd there. There's people from Jerusalem, but there's also people from Galilee and all over Judea. And not all of them know that the, the chief priests and Pharisees have already set on killing him because they don't like his answer about where he came from. Well, the people, and I don't know if... It's a mixed group. What people said this? They said, thou hast a devil. Thou hast a demon. Who goes about to kill thee? Who's trying to kill you? <sighs> and they're mocking when they say you have a demon. That, that's an ugly thing to say about it. That's like saying, you crazy, man. Only it's harsher than that. Who's trying to kill you? Verse 21 to 24, he keeps teaching. He keeps teaching. He ans Jesus answered and said unto them, I've done one work, and y'all marvel. Now, what's he talking about? About a year and a half earlier, he'd been in Jerusalem at the pool where people waited to be healed if the water was stirred by the angel. And on the Sabbath day, he asked a fellow if he wanted to be healed, and the man said, I got nobody to help me down into the water. Obviously, he wanted to be healed. He'd been 38 years infirm, and Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. 
And it was the Sabbath day. That's the one work that he did that they remembered there in Jerusalem that made the enemies against him. And he's going to respond now to their remembering that breaking the Sabbath thing with reference to Moses. Verse 22, Moses gave you the circumcision. It wasn't from Moses, but the fathers. It was given to Abraham long before Moses. And you, all of you, on the Sabbath day circumcised a man. Why? It was a fixed day, a number of days after birth that a male child had to be circumcised. It was fixed. It was eight days, I think, but I'm not certain. Eight days after birth, the male child had to be circumcised. Well, if he was born the day before the Sabbath, he's got to be circumcised on the Sabbath. It has to be. And so Jesus makes reference to that. You on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? In the other Gospels, in another place, answering the same question, he says, well, why don't you have a, an animal that falls into a pit? You know, he's going to die. Won't you jump down in the pit and lift him out, even if it's the Sabbath day? You got mercy on your donkey, but not on man. <laughs> why are you angry at me? Because I made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day, completely whole on the Sabbath day. Is it right that you're angry with me? And then he says this, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now he's teaching in the temple. He's teaching God's word. He's teaching the law. I mean, he is. He's explaining and teaching. And he gives a principle here that goes way beyond the individual incident. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I think he's saying make sure you see the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. I think I, he's saying that because every commentary I looked at used that, that kind of an idea, not, not the letter, but the spirit of the law. Look beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. What, did, what would Moses do? You know? <laughs> well, verses 25, 26, 27, there's some confusion here. They're listening to him teach. They're marveling at his teaching. Verse 25, then said some of them of Jerusalem, isn't this the one they want to kill? Is not this he whom they seek to kill? He's speaking boldly, and they're standing right there in the temple too, the Pharisees and the chief priests. They say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Sort of asking, have they learned something since this man's been around that they really think he is the Christ but when they ask that they, they're expecting a negative answer they don't think he's the Christ they don't know he's the Christ they don't think he's the Christ do they so they're mocking the rulers because of their weak response to Jesus bold teaching and then they kind of answer their own confused question we know this man they say who did they think he was child of Joseph and Mary. They thought he was from Nazareth, which is where he grew up. And that was, that's not the right place. Everybody knew he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem ever since the wise men came to King Herod and they searched it out and went and killed all the children in that area. 
And then it says at the end of verse 27, when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. I think this is a veiled reference back to that very earliest promise of the substitute God would provide. Back in Genesis 3.15, God was addressing the serpent who had deceived Eve and caused Adam and Eve to sin. And of the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, he speaks and says, it shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is an unusual expression because it's not the woman that has the seed that causes generation. And yet there was this reference to the seed of the woman would be the one that would give a fatal wound to this serpent after he's himself suffered a painful wound in his heel. The Jews developed this and other passages to think, well, when the Christ comes, he's going to come from an unusual place. When they got Isaiah's scripture, they knew that he would be born of a virgin. But before that, they just knew he's coming from some place we don't really know. There was a whole list of references to the rabbis in the commentaries about this idea that he comes from some place we don't know, but I didn't choose to write him down. Well, no man knows whence he is. Verse 28, he cries in the temple as he taught, saying, you can't necessarily tell it here, but this word crying is the same word that was used about the, the demon-possessed man over on the shore of the lake that cried with a loud voice and cut himself with snow. It's, it's an inarticulate, ah! When he hears their, their muttering and their response, and he's, ah! You both, and then he goes on teaching, understandably, you both know me and you know whence I am. You know me and you know whence I am. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not, but I know him, for I am from him and he has sent me. He's told them before, he's telling them again, but they're slow learners like you and me a little, I think. You know me and you know whence I am. What does it say in John 3.16? He gave his only begotten son. Who? God. You know me and you know whence I am. I am not come of myself. It wasn't just my idea. God sent me. He that sent me is true. And you don't know him whom you know not. You don't know him. Verse 29, I know him. I know him. I am from him and he has sent me. Not shy at all. Did Jesus ever say who he really was? <laughs> did, he not, did he ever stop saying it? You know me, you know whence I am. I'm, I'm not demon-possessed. Well, they sought to take him, verse 30. They sought to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour was not yet come. And then look at verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. Isn't that amazing? We don't have recorded here much of a gospel message, except Jesus saying over and over and over again, he's the one God the Father sent. You know who I am. I'm the one 
He sent me, I testify of him. He taught many things that are not recorded in this chapter. But there was enough in his teaching here that many of the people believed in him. And they believed in him as explained by John as he records their remarks there in verse 31. When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? They believed because they remembered the miracles he had done. And they've heard him teaching in the temple. And here just now have heard him say, I am the one you know. You know me. You know I came from heaven. I didn't come by myself. God sent me. You don't know him. I know him. You want to know him? You better get with me. Many of the people believed in him. When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? Now, I have to break this chapter in half somewhere, and this is where I've chosen to break it in half. But I want you to think about this. We have a tremendous advantage beyond what this crowd in Jerusalem had, and yet many of them believed on him. What's our advantage that we have? We have the rest of the gospel. We have the rest of the story. We know that he really did come to the time when his time was come, and he did set aside his life. He did go to the cross and die, not because he had to. The book of Hebrews teaches us the only reason we have to die is because of sin. He didn't have to die, but he died for my sin. He died for the sins of all mankind. This man, when he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One sacrifice for sins forever. We have that tremendous advantage to know what he did. And so it makes sense to believe in him, not just he's the one he said he is, but he died for my sins. He didn't stay dead, he rose again, proving it was done, proving it was accepted to his Father in heaven, proving who he was, was who he was. He went back to heaven and left the church to tell the story that we do this morning. And if you're listening to this, you need to do if you never have, what these many people did when Jesus spoke to them, teaching in the temple in the midst of the feast in Jerusalem. You need to believe in him. He's the Christ, the promised one, the one God said would be the substitute. The first picture of that is when God the Father covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden with coats of skins taken from innocent animal victims that he killed to cover them with coats of skins. Blood was shed and their nakedness was covered. He taught the content of that to Adam and Eve because they offered sacrifices and taught their sons to offer sacrifices. Killing innocent animals provided to them by God so that they could cover their nakedness, cover their sin until the final Lamb of God would come that would take away, not just cover, but take away the sin of the world. When the forerunner, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming in public for the first time, his words were, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is the introduction that Jesus needed and claimed and brought forth himself for the rest of his life. I'm the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. You have to believe who he is. 
to believe who he is. Did that for you. Did that for me. He promises whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When you believe his promise, he gives you everlasting life. If you quit believing his promise after you have believed his promise, you could lose your assurance of salvation. But you couldn't lose the security of salvation because that's on God. He gives everlasting life even if you don't think so anymore. You ought to know that you have eternal life because the promise of the Bible is so plain. But you could forget or you could modify your brain with drugs or alcohol you could lose your mind. It doesn't take away from your eternal security that God has saved everyone that believes in Jesus. I hope if you have not understood before, but just this morning, understand the promise of Jesus is eternal life to everyone who believes in him. These people, many of the people, believed in him. The Christ, the promised one, they didn't know what he was going to do on the cross necessarily, but they knew he was it, and they believed in him. When they believed in him, God gave them everlasting life. They still have it. Dr. Lindstrom one time asked a fellow who said he believed in Jesus, he said, what kind of life do you have? Everlasting life. What kind of life will you have five years from now? Everlasting life. What kind of life will you have 50 years from now? Everlasting life. What kind of life will you have 200 years from now? And the fellow said, I don't think I'm going to live that long. He, he missed the point. <laughs> Everlasting life isn't this old body. It's being with Jesus and like Jesus. So let's pray together, all right? Father in heaven, as we have looked at this passage in word and see that it leads at least for some of the people, many of the people in the crowd that heard Jesus teach, it leads them to believe in him. So we pray that perhaps among the group that's listening this morning, there'll be some that will believe in him and understand they can't do anything, but they'll hear, hear who he is and believe in him. And God will do something. He will give them everlasting life. We just pray, Father, that, that no one would put that off. The danger of putting off believing in Jesus. I don't think anybody necessarily can decide to believe in him, but you can decide to not believe in him, and that's very, very dangerous. Father, help each one to hear and accept and realize the truth of who Jesus was and what he did for them. We pray you'll empower and bless the, the church service to follow and give, give the preacher power in your word and clarity with the God.